You are listening to a message from First Assembly of God. We are a church on a mission to restore everyone, everywhere, to a loving and holy God. If today's message inspires you in any way, would you consider sharing it with a friend? This is just one of the many ways that you can be a part of what God is doing here at First Assembly. Good morning. Each Sunday around Veterans Day, I think it's good for us to express our thanks to those who have served our nation. So if you have served in one of our armed forces, would you please stand? We want to give you another round of applause and personally acknowledge you. Would you stand, men, women, friends? Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate you. We appreciate their service, don't we? Let's say amen a little louder. We appreciate their service, don't we? I think it's important this morning as a church and as a nation we do that. And uh, can we do something maybe a bit unique this year? I, I believe we should pray uh, for our veterans. As you are probably aware of two things, really. Number one, this is actually Veterans Day, November 11th, and it is the 100th anniversary of the signing of the armistice that ended World War I. Where we started celebrating or memorializing, honoring Veterans Day. Uh, the war to end all wars. And that, that hasn't worked so well. How many know just because uh, we say all wars should end doesn't mean all wars end? We know as believers that true peace comes in a relationship through Jesus with our Creator God. In fact, I know it's kind of a bumper sticker, and I'm not much for slogans and cliches, but it's true. When there's no God, N-O, when there's no God, there's no peace. However, if you know God, K-N-O-W, right? If you know God, then you, K-N-O-W, you know peace. No God, no peace. No God, no peace. Can we pray for our nation to know God? Can we pray for our communities, our neighborhoods? our households to know God. We live in a, an era of conflict and tension, and we shouldn't be surprised. That's what Jesus said it would be. And uh, we want to pray uh, for the peace that comes from knowing God, especially for our veterans. As you're probably aware, the, the shooter in, in California who went into that bar last weekend and, and took the lives of, I believe, 11 people, including the number 12 was himself. He was a veteran. And uh, many veterans carry scars and wounds from combat that I frankly could never understand. I've never experienced that kind of pain, trauma, fear, or violence. And uh, it is no wonder that many suffer from PTSD and, and mental trauma and illness. And the church, listen to me, the church needs to be a place of mental health and healing. And so the church should be a place where a loving community of people... Love God, love your neighbor. Where a healthy, Jesus-loving, gracious, and merciful community of people, coupled with the powerful healing presence of God who can heal cancer, heal a hip. About, we're about seven weeks out from a Sunday morning service where a lady just in the middle of our service was healed of chronic hip pain. God can heal a body. God can heal a brain. So a loving community of people, the loving powerful healing work of God, and it can partner with mental health professionals where everyone can come together 
and see healing brought. So let's take a moment to pray for those veterans in our community who carry wounds and scars that many of us can't imagine. I think the Lord will honor that kind of prayer. So will you pray with me? Father, we love those who have served you. We love those who have served this nation. And we care as a church family for those in our neighborhoods, in our community, those in our nation that have been in conflict and now suffer from that that trauma and that pain that most of us can't even imagine. So Jesus, we know you're capable of healing, deep healing. Healing in our bodies and our minds and our souls. Healing in our spirit. And I pray, Jesus, that you would use good men and women, Jesus-loving men and women in this church, to speak life and healing. We pray for the mental health professionals that serve the veteran community. God, I pray that you would help them. Bring healing to them. Bring healing to our land. In Jesus' name, can we say amen? Amen. It's my joy today to welcome, introduce to many of you, my friend David Wommelsdorf and his wife, Britannica. Um, They're here from the Chicago area. It was eight years ago that Angela and I traveled to Springfield, Missouri, looking to hire a worship pastor. And we found David and Britannica, brought them on our staff in uh, the south suburbs. And David said, kind of like, the one thing I don't want to do is preach. Give me a guitar, give me some songs, and, and then I'm good. And I remember the Sunday, I asked him, I, w- I want you to share your testimony. I want you, you, he told me a story when we were alone in a car. I said, that, that story, that story needs to be shared. And probably 30 seconds into his talk with our church, I said, God sent me a guy who can play guitar and can sing, but he's called to preach. He just doesn't know it yet. And over the course of a few years together, it was a joy of mine and a, and a sh- for a short time to play a small part in, a, in what God was doing in David and Britannica's life. Now they're planting a church. I'm going to let them tell the story, but would you give them a warm, excited welcome to First Assembly today? Come on up, guys. Britannica. Well, good morning. How are you guys? Thank you so much for having us. We're so excited to be here. Like he said, it was a complete honor to serve with Pastor Joel and Angela for the season of time we did. And thanks for taking a chance on us, a young couple out of Bible college. Um, We are so excited. I think there's a picture of us. That's us. I'm Britannica. David, we already said that. (laughs) Um, We have three kids. Johnny's four, Joby's three, she just turned three, and Jack is one. They're with your nursery workers. Praise Jesus for nursery workers on a Sunday. Um, So I wanted to just share a quick fun fact. Who has ever heard of the show American Ninja Warrior? Anyone? Feel? Um, so, fun fact for you. I am married to an American Ninja Warrior. Um... (laughs) It's fun to brag on him, but it actually has a point. (laughs) He competed this year on season 10, and that was really, really awesome. But um, I wanted to just say, he's going to share a little bit about what God's called us to do, but it's really cool because God used what kind of just started as a a talent, a hobby. It's a talent, right? Yeah, it's definitely a talent, (laughs) a hobby, Um, and has really turned it into something that he has used to open doors for us in the city, he actually coaches at, at an American Ninja Warrior gym, so he has impact into family and kids' lives that otherwise we wouldn't. And um, I just wanted to just say a little encouragement. If there's something God's put in your heart, 
that it might not even seem spiritual, (laughs) but you know that you love something, that you're passionate about something, pursue it, chase it, because it was put there by God for a greater reason, for his kingdom. And so I just wanted to encourage you guys with that. But he's going to share a little bit about what we're doing in Chicago. I'm ready to preach. Come on, somebody. (laughs) John 10.10 says this, the thief comes to steal and to kill. And to destroy. How many in your life? The thief's come in. The thief has tried to steal from you, tried to kill you, or tried to destroy anything in your life. How many? Come on. Raise your hand. Identify in this room today. But Jesus says this, I have come that they may have life and life to the full. How many know this? The church, the church, not the building, but the church is the hope of the world. Amen. Come on, I said the church is the hope of the world. There's no plan B. There's no fallback plan. God's not going to rescind. Well, Jesus is coming back again, yes, but he's not going to rescind them to do the whole thing over again. He's going to, this is the plan for the world. The church is the hope of the world. We are planting a brand new church in Chicago itself. How many Chicagoans we got in the room? Anybody from Chicago itself? North side? North side pride? Anybody? No? South side? West side? East side, you're in the lake or Indiana. (laughs) The church, we're planting a brand new church. It's called The Grid Church, G-R-I-D, The Grid Church. A couple years ago, about five years ago, God called us specifically. He he dropped a thought on our heart. He said, David Britannica, I've called you to bring life to the city of Chicago. And he gave us something very, very specific. And to be honest with you, it was quite frightening when when he told us this. He said, God, I've called you to bring life to Chicago and to do it one neighborhood at a time. And if you understand the city of Chicago, you know it is divided into 77 distinct neighborhoods. People identify by what neighborhood you're from or by what crossroads you live at. That's how people identify themselves in Chicago. 77 distinct neighborhoods, soon to be perhaps 78. There's an area of land right south of Soldier Field. Developers are trying to come in and create these high-rise million-dollar condos and apartments or whatever. And if that happens, we'll have 78. The task is even taller for us. But 77 distinct neighborhoods right now, God's called us to bring life to this city. He said, David, pretend I've called you to be a multiplying church. Again, we know that the church is the hope of the world, right? Therefore, if the church is the hope of the world, we need to be planting as many new life-giving churches, spirit-filled, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching churches all across not only the U.S., not only our cities, but across the world, a brand-new life-giving church that reaches into every single neighborhood in our city. It's a tall task, and one we may never see the fruition of in our lifetime. We, may, we understand this. We may die before this church sees the fruition of this, this vision, this mission actually come true fruition, but we know God's called us to plant this. The second thing he's called us to do is actually to reach into the city and to impact the lives of families. How many families we got in the room today? Yes, be loud, be proud, love your family. I was 12 years old, and I was coming home, ironically, from a a church trip, kind of like Momentum Youth Convention, kind of like that. Uh, My best friend's mom was taking me home this particular night, and as we pulled up to my house, small little house, uh, I was about to get out of the van, and she looks at me, and she says, David, we, we need to talk before you get out of the van. And I knew what that meant because we had had these conversations before, but I was not prepared for what came next. She said, we need to talk. Your dad's gone. And, and I said, what do you mean my dad's gone? Is, is he dead? Is it, wh- where did he go? What, what's happened? She said, no. Your dad tried to kill your mom, 
and he's been arrested, and he's no, he's no longer here. He's not. You're not. You're not going to see him again. And and I sat there and I bawled for 30 minutes. I bawled in my best friend's mom's van. I just cried, and, and I gained all the strength, all the energy I could. I got out, went to my front door. My mom met me, and again, you can imagine what she looked like. She was beaten and bruised and battered, and all of that. She looked at me. She smiled with tears rolling down her face, and she said, "David, he he's gone." He's not going to hurt us anymore. And that was a moment, a remarkable moment in my life that actually sent me running, not to God, I'm, I'm ashamed to say, but running from God. And really for the next nine, eight to nine years of my life, I ran from God and from the call of God on my life. And it wasn't really until college, I was sitting in Central Bible College, Bible College of all places, not really living necessarily for the Lord, but God met me, and he, I knew there was a call of God on my life, and I answered that call, and he met me uniquely in the second story prayer room of Horton Hall, and he gave me a glimpse into my future, should I release the bitterness, and release the anger, and release all the things that I had held my dad captive for, for years, he said, if you just release those things, it's like he gave me a glimpse into my future of having a wife and having a kids, because I believed the lie, that I too would be nothing more than what I saw exampled in front of me in my father, and that was an angry alcoholic who just abused his wife, and his kids. That's all my dad did. I didn't know my dad really outside of that realm of, of reality. I didn't know him at all from, from that. And I believed a lie that I too would be that. And so I started that path. And then in college, God gripped my heart and said, David, I've called you to something greater. Should you turn your life around? You are not going to be what you saw exampled in front of you. Not because out of spite and you're going to shake your fist at your father, but because my grace is sufficient for the call of God on your life. And so when God called us to plant this church, it was we, we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt. People always say, when you plant a church, you got to have a demographic of people. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. The church is open for everybody. Everybody, come on in. But I get it. You gotta, if you market to everybody, you reach no one. So I get it. And we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, God called us to reach families. How many baby boomers we got in the room? Baby boomers. Here's what happened in Chicago with the baby boomers. We had... Baby boomers got married, they had kids, and a lot of them stayed, and a lot of them moved out to the suburbs. In fact, the majority moved out to the suburbs. Suburbs are are great. We love going to the suburbs. It's awesome. You can go and have parking lots and parking spaces that are really wide, and you don't get dings in your car, and people flipping you off for no reason. It's awesome. It's great. We love the suburbs. Baby boomers moved out to the suburbs. Um, How many Gen Xers we got in the room? How many don't know what generation you, you're like, I don't know, I have no idea what gener- Gen Xers and millennials, here's what happened with them. They were all uh, single, and then they started to mingle, hallelujah, they started having kids, and then they all stayed in the city. It's really remarkable. If you go to our neighborhood, we, we're up on the north side, it's a neighborhood called Lincoln Square. If you go to our neighborhood, you will see every single day, without fail, moms and dads and strollers and pavilions and parks and family-friendly, family-oriented things for everybody in the family to do. When God called us to plant this church, we said beyond a shadow of a doubt, God's called us to not only multiply, yes, but to reach families. Because in our day and age, we have so many demographics of families now, right? We have mom and dad and kids. But how many know we also have mom and mom and kids? How many know we got dad and dad and kids? How many know our neighbors above us, we live in a two-flat, our neighbors right above us, mom and mom, and they're going to have kids one day. And God's called us to reach all types of families, families that are broken, families that are single-parent uh, single home, families that are completely and totally devastated by choices made by their parents. They're broken families, and God's called us to reach these these families take the broken pieces of their life, put them together again, and be used by God. God's called us to reach the families that are seemingly whole to fi- help them find their purpose and reach into the city of Chicago to make a difference, to bring revival. Because how many know what happens in Chicago happens across the entire state of Illinois? 
We're excited to bring life to this city, and we're not foolish enough to think we can do it on our own. We've got a great team of people, and we've got churches all across this great state that are partnering with us in prayer. They're supporting us. They're praying because the spiritual battle is unbelievable as you walk the city. I'm sure many of you go into the city, and you go into the touristy thing, but once you get into the neighborhoods, you begin to feel the oppression. You begin to feel the spiritual battle that is actually happening in the city of Chicago. It is un, it's just remarkable, and we walk the streets, and we are just inundated, and just you feel heavy because you carry the weight of what God's called us to do, and it's amazing. We're excited to bring life. We're excited to do it one neighborhood at a time. Again, it's going to be years and years and years and years and years, and sometimes it feels like we're doing it one person at a time. It, it is unattractive. It is not always appealing, but it is the work God's called us to do, and we're faithful to do it, and we thank you for your support. It is amazing to have churches all across this great state supporting us, praying for us, lifting us up, holding up our arms like Aaron did for Moses when his arms were getting weak. It's, it's amazing to have churches like you believing and supporting with us. So thank you, Pastor Joel. Thank you. You are the man. How many glad to be in church today? That's awesome. Hey, let me just say this. Uh, I said it at your team night a couple months back, and I'm excited to be back. Thank you for having me back. Uh, I want to give honor where honor is due. You have probably one of the best leaders, pastors, couples, families leading this church, not only in America but in the world. You... Look, people, people all the time when we come to church is they're, you know, they're very kind and very generous with their words. But I can tell you this, Joel is a friend. He, not only did I work with him, work, uh, or work for him, work with him, but uh, I, I worked alongside him and I got to know this man uh, in, in a great way, in a really cool way. He loves God. He, he loves and cherishes his wife. He loves and he honors his kids. And I want you to hear this. He loves and he honors and he prays for you by name. You stand on the shoulders of a great leader of a great family who loves God and who calls on God on your behalf. He stands in the gap for you and you're able to see greater. You're able to stand taller. You're able to see greater and do greater things because this man, this family is standing with you in the gap. So one more time, would you just give honor here where honor is due? Come on, you ready for the word today? Oh, come on. I said, are you ready for the word today? I thought we were saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost. We got the victory. Come on, somebody. Mark chapter number one. We're going to be looking at two verses today. And if you are taking notes, and I hope that you are. Any note takers in the room today? Would you just write this down at the top of your page? The wild, wild wilderness. This is an interesting statistic right here. Stats show us this. Jesus actually loves you more if you take notes in church. So I hope that you are taking notes in church. They're going to ask at the pearly gates, where are your notes from church? You get a bigger mansion if you got them. Hey, I, I'm, you look, here's the deal. You're getting to know me. I'm getting to know you a little bit. I'm a hollerback preacher, right? I like talking to you. I like you talking back to me. I like you just shouting things whenever you want, right? You can, you can say things. I don't even know what this means, but curse the devil, right? He's already cursed, but you can curse the devil. You can stand and you can hallelujah, hallelujah. You can say, oh, that was for me. You can say, mm, that was for him. You can anything you want. Just give me some feedback here. In fact, you know what? Turn to your neighbor. Turn to your neighbor. Ask your neighbor. Say, neighbor. 
Come on, don't be shy. Get to know, say, say, neighbor, have you been to the wild, wild wilderness? That neighbor didn't like you. Turn to your other neighbor, other neighbor, say, other neighbor, have you been to the wild, wild wilderness? I'm going to share a story of a, of a man who shared his story. He recounted his story of how he went into the Amazon jungle by himself. Dude's crazy, foolish enough to go into the Amazon jungle with nothing but a backpack on, water, canteen of water, and some snacks in his bag. Walks into the Amazon jungle, goes in for a week straight, comes into contact with a 23-foot-long, true story, you can Google it and find it, 23-foot-long anaconda snake, 23-foot-long anaconda snake. And he shares how he survived, he actually survived his encounter with a 23-foot-long anaconda snake. And he said, you know what, I'm just feeling generous. And if anybody out in the world decides that they want to go into the Amazon by themselves and they come in contact with a 23-foot-long anaconda snake. I want to give them 12 simple steps to follow so that they, too, can walk away with their life. How many are foolish enough? You'd say, that's me. I want to go into the Amazon by myself. Nah, I don't, yeah, there's not many that would do that. But if you decide you're going to do this, he gives you 12 simple steps. I want to give you these 12 steps today. Should you find yourself in the Amazon next to a 23-foot-long anaconda snake? Number one, he says this, be alone. The anaconda will attack you. If you're with other people, it will feel threatened. You'll make that snake nervous. Number two, he says, if you see an anaconda, make no sudden movements. The anaconda will feel threatened if it thinks you're attacking. Thus, it will attack you. This is, this is cool. Number three, being that you can't run, that would be a sudden movement, lie down slowly on the ground. Number four. Make sure, he says, you lie down with your feet facing the anaconda's mouth. This is important. This is important, he writes. Number five, the anaconda will slowly make his way to you. But don't panic. Just lie still. It's normal. It's going to be fine, <laughs> he writes. Number six, as the anaconda approaches your feet, this is awesome, it will dislocate its jaw. So it can eat you, eat you, <laughs> he says. Just stay calm, normal, totally fine. Number seven, the anaconda will now begin slowly eating you whole. It will not chew. Remember, it dislocated its jaw. It's gonna, it will not chew. It will just swallow you whole. Again, he writes, normal. <laughs> Number nine, or eight, he says, be sure to have a canteen with water and a snack. The entire process is going to take 12 hours, 12 hours, 12 hours long. 
Number nine, as the anaconda slowly makes his way to your mid. So let's just get a picture here, all right? You lie down. You see an anaconda. You lie down. Here you are, just hot dog style right here, right? Just lie down, feet facing the anaconda's mouth. As the anaconda makes his way to your mid-quad around the sixth hour, right where your hands should be. Number 10, she says, slowly grab your knife. Place the blade between the side of your leg and the crease of the anaconda's mouth, right where the mouth creases. Number 11, this is where it gets juicy and good. Number 11, he says, with lightning fast speed, quickly pull up and over the anaconda's head with lightning fast speed, with your knife and with incredible strength, if, he says, if, (laughs) if, done correctly, you will decapitate the snake, thus killing it. You'll then be able to walk away with your life. Hallelujah. You will walk away. You decapitate the snake. It's awesome. You're Bear grills. And then he says, number 12, don't forget your knife. <laughs> don't forget your knife. What does the Amazon jungle and The wild, wild wilderness, this place, this desert, this desolation. What do all these places have in common? Well, unless you're like Bear Grylls, right? Unless you have like the resource and the capability and the capacity to really survive in an environment like that, you're going to die. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad you came to church today? You're going to die in those places, in those situations, in those circumstances. That's what we see here in this particular story. Mark chapter number 1, we come to two verses that are unbelievably remarkable in the life of Jesus. He finds himself in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of an actual desert, in the middle of the place. It's the place here, Mark chapter 1. Let's catch you up to speed real quick. We've got it up here on the screen, but let me catch you up to speed. If you just read a few verses earlier, you notice this. Jesus, in fact, actually, John the Baptist comes on the scene, right? And John the Baptist's whole point in his entire life was to point people to Jesus. Jesus was coming on the scene, and John's whole job was to say, hey, Gee, there's a Messiah. There is a Savior coming. He's going to save the entire world. People thought this dude was crazy, but that was his whole job. And then, lo and behold, here comes Jesus on the scene in his long white robe and his long hair and his blue eyes. He kind of looked like the model from Zoolander, right? He looks, and he's a Middle Eastern man, looks nothing like what we vision Jesus in our movies today. But Jesus comes on the scene. What happens? John baptizes Jesus. Jesus. And then here's what happens. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. God shows up and with a booming voice and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. It's an inauguration of Jesus' earthly ministry. God is stamping his approval upon Jesus, endowing him with all the power, all the authority to do all the miracles, all the things we see Jesus do throughout the entire uh, gospel accounts, all the New Testament. We see everything. It's a glorious, marvelous, miraculous moment of Jesus' inauguration into his earthly ministry. And that's where we pick it up in verse 12. It says this, the Spirit, everybody say the Spirit. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. 
That's it. There's nothing more. There's nothing less. There's no account of this temptation. It's just Jesus in the wilderness. Satan shows up to beat him up, and the angels were minted. That's it. I'm curious here in this room. I want to know who my friends are. How many, how many ADD folk we got in the room? Just raise your hand, right? My hand's up. ADD folk, right? You just, you're hard time. Just be, be, be proud of that. I'm, I'm, pr- I'm be proud. Raise your hand. Come on. Just, hey. <laughs> how many, how many detail-oriented people we got in the room? You're just into the detail, right? All about the detail. Well, right now, all of you, you're just really, really frustrated right now, right? Because there's like, there's nothing here. There's, they're like, where's he going to go with the sermon, right? I don't, I'm, just, I'm ready to check out and go to lunch right now. Go to the Golden Crown. You guys got Golden Crown here? Golden Crown, we're ready to beat the Baptist at the Golden Crown over here. <laughs> can I say that? I don't even know if I can say that or not. Anyway, you're, de- you're frustrated now, right? Because there's no deet. Kind of reminds me of my marriage with my beautiful bride right here on the front row. She is unbelievably detail-oriented. I'm not. I'm just not the detail guy. I'm not into the details. I'm just, she's all about the details, right? Here's an example. I walk in. Long, hard day of work, been saving souls all day long, <laughs> and then and then I walk in, and, <laughs> and she greets me with a big old smile, and she's like, hey, babe, how is your day? And I'm like, well, babe, it's good. Now, babe, how was your day? Oh, golly gee willikers, let me tell you all about my day. Number one, I woke up, and then I was like, oh, I'm tired, so I stretch, and I yawn, and I roll over, and there you are. And I'm like, I want to give you a kiss, but my breath was stanky, so I had to go brush my teeth. So I went brush my teeth, came back to bed, gave you a kiss. Then I heard Johnny crying, and I had to go change his diaper, so I went and grabbed a diaper, changed his, and then I came back to bed because they were just laying there. I wanted to give you another kiss. You get the idea, right? Just detail-oriented individual, but... I believe Mark is trying to do something really, really specific in this circumstance right here. I believe Mark is obliterating every single amount of detail that we know. Because we know this. Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew and Luke both give the same account, right, in other gospel records. And they give incredible detail as to how Satan tempted Jesus, where he took him, what Jesus' response was. But Mark obliterates every single amount of detail in this story. And I believe he does it for a particular, specific reason. Look at it again. It says this. The spirit immediately drove him into where? The wilderness. And he was in where? For 40 days being tempted by Satan. You see, it's not about the tempting. I believe it's about the place. Let me clue you in here real quick. As you're reading through the Bible, as you're doing your daily devotionals, you're, re- you're spending time with God. Anytime you come to a passage of Scripture where the author repeats like a word or a phrase, oftentimes that author is trying to tell you this is what this passage is about as you're reading through. And I believe Mark is telling us it's not about the temptation. It's about actually the place. It's the place where Jesus was tempted. It's the place where Satan has the authority. It's the place where Satan has home court advantage. It's the place where if Satan can just get you there and keep you there long enough, he can destroy you. It's the place. It's not the temptation. It's the place. And perhaps you're here today and you're in the place. You're up against it right now. You're in that place. You've been struggling. You've been saying, God, do you even hear my prayers? 
Do you even see me in the midst of this wilderness, the midst of this place? Do you even know I'm here? Your marriage is on the brink of disaster and divorce and destruction. And you've been praying and calling God, God, reconciliation, deliver us, whatever the prayer is. Maybe it's a child who's far from God and you've been crying and praying. Maybe it's a financial, maybe it's a work situation, but you're in the place And Satan says, if I can just keep you here long enough, I can destroy your spiritual wherewithal. I can break down your fortitude, and I can ultimately destroy you and the call of God on your life. It is the place. I want to give you a couple quick examples here, a couple quick observations um, that you can take from the place to draw some encouragement today. Number one is this, as we see in verse number 12, a spirit-led life is unbelievably thrilling. If you are taking notes, write it down. Number one, the spirit-led life is thrilling. Everybody say thrilling. Any roller coaster riders in the room? Thrilling. It is a thrilling, thrilling ride. Remember, verse number 12, the spirit immediately drives Jesus into the wilderness. But we see this a couple verses earlier. Remember, Jesus is on like the mountaintop. Right? He gets baptized. God the Father shows up. The Holy Spirit shows up. Jesus is there inaugurating. Powerful moment. Miraculous moment where God is inaugurating Jesus into his earthly ministry. And then immediately, Mark says, immediately he drives Jesus into the wilderness. He's on the mountaintop one moment of his life. And then immediately the Spirit drives him into the lowest place of recorded history that we know of Jesus. The lowest wilderness place. A spirit that life being left by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you are inundated and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit every single day, you can go from mountaintop to valley in the matter of milliseconds, and you can know that God is with you the entire time. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. In the book of Acts, there's this incredible, and I love this story, this amazing story of a guy by the name of Philip. Philip, an angel, the Bible says this in the book of Acts chapter 8, there is an angel who led Philip to the desert. How many know if an angel shows up, wings flapping, leading you to the desert, it's going to be good, right? It's going to be a good day. You better bring a machete. You better bring bear grills. You better bring something. Bring your iPhone. Take pictures. It's going to be good that day. An angel leads Philip to the desert. Why? Because there's an Ethiopian eunuch there who needs the Lord. And the angel leads him to, to this Ethiopian eunuch. Philip then leads the dude to the Lord. He baptizes him. And in Acts chapter 8, verse number 38, it says this. And when they came up out of the water, catch this, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. You're looking, what? An angel went to all the trouble to tell Philip, go into the wilderness, go into the desert, because there's a guy there who needs Jesus. Go lead him to the Lord, baptize him, and then the Spirit then leads him to, leads him away, carries him away. Wouldn't we in today's day, and like you lead someone to the Lord, you bring him to church, right? They fill out a card, a connection card. Hey, we want to get you involved in Sunday school and the worship team and hosting team and all that, right? All of a sudden, the Spirit carries Philip away. Why? We see it here. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. Bye-bye. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Why? Why did the Spirit go to all this trouble? Why did an angel go to all the trouble to get Philip out to lead this dude to the Lord and then carry him away? Because 
The Bible says there were people along the path that also needed Jesus. God sent Philip to do one specific thing, lead that guy to the Lord. And then he carried him on his way to lead other people to preach the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. You see, when you live a spirit-led life, you are inundated with the power of the Holy Spirit. You can go from a mountaintop. You can go from one thing. And you say, God, it doesn't make any sense for me to leave this place because there's a guy here I just led to the Lord, and now I need to disciple him. I need to give him the proper resource. I need to do all these things. But no, no, no. God will take care of that. If the Spirit of God is leading you on, you need to move on. You need to go because you are inundated and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit spirit, a thrilling, unbelievably thrilling life. We see it elsewhere in scripture as well. Romans chapter number eight, Paul says this. He understood this concept of living a spirit-led life. He says this, for if you live, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. Hallelujah. You're going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death, catch that, if by the who? The spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the spirit of God, our sons and our daughters of God. One more example from the Bible here. Paul and Timothy now, they're on this missionary journey, a missionary trip. And they come to, we come to Acts chapter 16, says this. Paul and Timothy went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit. To speak the word in Asia. And when they'd come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go. I, w- I want to tell you this. Sometimes it's the spirit of, of God leading you to do something. Other times it's the spirit perhaps leading you away from something. You say, Paul and Timothy had great intentions to go and preach the gospel. Why would the spirit lead them away? If the spirit of God is leading you to something, I'd, I'd encourage you run. And that, and that same example of, of Philip, Philip in the desert, it says Philip ran to the dude. The angel led him there, the spirit led him there, and then he ran to the guy. But if the spirit's leading you away from something, I'd encourage you run, run the other direction. Here's an example. I, we, I, one night, sitting with um, just a group of friends, there was nothing, nothing spiritual about this particular night. We were just hanging out. Right, chilling, relaxing, maxing, all cool, shooting some people outside of the school. Went now, nah, it's to hold up. Phew. Add, right? Here we go. Sitting down, we were just hanging out, right? And I felt like there was this moment, moment where, like, where, like, I felt God was like prompting and leading me to say something to one of my friends, and I was like, God, look, man, God, God. This is not the time for this moment right here. This is just hanging. We're, 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 we're chilling. Things are awesome and fun. And if you show up right now, God, this is not going to be good right now. And God just continue, like, just urging and prompting and this whole thing. And finally, after all the arguing with God, I'm like, all right, God, here, here we go. And it's going to be weird and going to be awkward. And it was. So I'm like, hey, 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 bro. <laughs> hey, uh, here's the deal. And everyone's like. What what is going on right now? So anyway, I I I tell my friend what's you know hey, I'm like hey I try to make it real like you know hey I feel like God wanted me to say something to you <laughs> and just kind of wait for anybody you know right uh, and so I did I go on and I share with what I felt like God was telling me to say to my friend. The night gets really weird, really awkward, and then the night quickly ended after that. So the night goes on, and I hadn't heard from my friend probably. It was two, three days. It may have been close to a week. I hadn't heard from my friend. I'm like, yeah, cool. I, I expect that. I expect he'd not want to hang with me anymore. So he randomly texts me one day, like a week later. He says, David, you, you, have, you have no way to know this, 
but you have no idea that night how much God needed me to hear what you said to me, what you spoke to me, what God said to me through you. You have no idea. I, I wonder, I wonder how many times we in our own life, we feel the prompting, right? We feel the spirit of God leading. We feel that prompting that God is like, hey, why don't you go invite your coworker to lunch? Hey, why don't you go take them to coffee? Hey, why don't you go meet your neighbor? Hey, why don't you go learn their name? Hey, why don't you go do this or do that? How many times, how many opportunities perhaps have we missed because we have neglected the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our life? When you were inundated with the power of the Holy Spirit, I would tell you, run to whatever the spirit is leading or perhaps leading you to or leading you from. Run to run from if you know the spirit of God is leading because God wants to do something in that moment that is supernatural and from heaven itself that you could never understand and we could never understand in our finite minds but God wants to do something supernatural through you if you live your life according to the spirit spirit that life is unbelievably thrilling amen 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 number two write this down you have a choice to be spirit led just write it down I have a choice to be spirit-led. Look at it here again in verse 12. It says, the spirit immediately, underline this in your Bible, drove him out. That's a really, really strong word, a really strong word in the original language. It's almost this idea of he had no choice. It's not that he didn't. It's that he was so full of the Holy Spirit that he was just following the Spirit's leading. It's not like he was a zombie bitten, you know, and he's just like now all of a sudden going. No, he had a choice, absolutely. But he was so full of the Holy Spirit, so full of the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit that he was just following the Spirit where he was leading him, even if that meant leading him into the wilderness. You do have a choice to be spirit-led. Again, remember Jesus leaving his inauguration, powerful moment, and then immediately he follows the spirit into the wilderness. Now look, here's the thing. I am not suggesting that every wilderness perhaps you find yourself in is a result of God putting you there. Uh, Perhaps it's a result of our own decision-making. Perhaps it's a result of our own mistakes, our own sin, our own shortcoming and failure. But here's what I am saying. I am saying this. If you find yourself in the midst of a wilderness, if you find yourself in that place and you know that you were put there by God and God has something for you, then that means that God wants to do something in you and through you that he can only accomplish in the midst of the place. In the midst of the wilderness, he can only do it and accomplish it once he gets you into the place. It is the place. Acts chapter 29, again, that same story says the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So what did Philip do? He ran to him. He got a choice, a choice to be spirit led. The third and the final thing here I want to just draw your attention to is this. The wilderness is a real place. You say, yeah, that's obvious. Just Write it down. The wilderness is a real place. In fact, you know, theologians, historians refer to this particular desert as a place of total and complete devastation. I love when the Bible records a place, a location, because it kind of gives us a visual. In fact, uh, I have a picture here that theologians and, and historians believe this was the actual desert Jesus found himself in when he was tempted by Satan. You get a lot, you get an idea of really the lack of everything, vegetation, 
there is no resource. There are unbelievable ravines and, and hilltops and, and, and valleys there. You get an idea. And if you are f- familiar with the tempting story of Jesus, you know this, that Satan used a lot of the terrain of the desert to tempt Jesus. He would take him up on a big hilltop, on a big mountaintop and say, why don't you throw yourself down from here? The angels will come and carry you and protect you. Right? Satan used the terrain, the place to tempt Jesus. But here's the thing. Here's what we got to understand. Let me just give you just a brief history lesson real quick, and I'm sure you already know this. This story, this book was written to a first century believer. So imagine with me today, we are first century. So right after Jesus' death, resurrection, we are that generation right after Jesus' death and resurrection. A first century believer, Mark is writing to this gospel account, first century believer. So when they hear the word wilderness, they are immediately going to be flooded with all kinds of emotion, all kinds of stories, all kinds of memories of what their ancestors shared with them about their wilderness wanderings. Right? All of their ancestors were slaves in Egypt. So here's what Mark is doing. Mark is using what we call biblical literary illusion. Right? We understand this in our day and age. If I were to say something like this, right? Uh, A guy walks in the back of the sanctuary wearing a a coonskin cap. We'd probably think of who? Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, absolutely. If, If I were to say, hey, another gentleman walked in the room and he's wearing a tall black stovepipe hat, he had facial hair, he's kind of weird looking. We'd probably think of Pastor Joel. You guys are very, very astute. Yes, Abe Lincoln. Yes, so this is what Mark This is what Mark is doing. He's drawing their attention to get them to feel this emotion, to get them to feel this, this literary illusion. He's trying to draw their attention to that moment where the Israelites were emancipated in a moment from slavery, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Moses comes along, delivers them. They go through the Red Sea, and now they find themselves where? In the wilderness for 40 years. Why? Because although the Israelites were out of Egypt, they often found themselves wanting to go back to slavery and go back to Egypt. So God had to have this process, this time of getting Egypt out of them, right? They're out of Egypt, but God's now got to get Egypt out of them. They were like, God, we want to go back to Egypt. Although we were slaves, although we were beaten every day, at least we had some watermelon At least we had some leeks. I don't even know what a leek is. At least we had some meat. God, all we got here is Panera bread falling from the sky. That's all we got here. We want to go back. But God had to send them through the wilderness to get Egypt out of them. The wilderness is a real place. A couple characteristics of the wilderness so you can draw some encouragement today. Because, again, we've been talking about this place. If Satan can just keep you there long enough, we're about to find out that the wilderness is not as terrible of a place as we think it is. A couple characteristics about the wilderness, and we're going to bring this plane to a landing here. Number one, the wilderness is a place of testing. Verse number 13, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan himself. We know this. If we read Mark's, or excuse me, Matthew's account and Luke's account, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days before he was ever approached by Satan himself. He was in the wilderness fasting. He had no food. He had no drink in his belly. He was fasting. I'm telling you, I get hangry if I don't have food after like two hours. I get the rumbly tumbly. I'm like, babe, give me some Cheez-Its or something. I need to eat Jesus 40 days. 
days without any food, any liquid in his body. And he is at that moment, after 40 days, tempted by Satan. So there's this idea. There's an idea here that there is a spirit, there is a, there is a wherewithal. Can Satan break down your wherewithal and your fortitude enough in the place without ever any spiritual element here at all? Can he just get you in that place and then break you down? Can he get you there and then destroy you? And again, there's been no spiritual element here at all. He hasn't even tried to tempt you. He's just trying to get you and keep you in that place. It's a place of testing. And after 40 days, Matthew says, then the tempter came. It's a place an unbelievable place of testing. But James says this. He says, consider it pure joy whenever you face testing and trials of many kind. You know, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. It's the place. The, number two, write it down. The wilderness is a place of struggle. You say, what's the difference between the testing and the struggle? Now this is your response to the testing. Here's the idea here. Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. It's a struggle. There's, the idea here is that there is so much more going on in the actual physical temptation and the physical place itself. We understand this to, we, we, we understand this as believers in Jesus Christ. There is a spiritual waging of war for your soul and for my soul every single day of our life to get us off of our calling, to get us off of what God has actually called us and positioned us to do for this time in our life. That's why Paul says this, put on the full armor of God, right? Put it all on so that when you, can, when, when, when you are tested, you can stand your ground. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? It may represent and manifest itself in family situations and in work situations and in marital problems and financial problems and all these different things. But our struggle is not against each other. Our struggle is against the spiritual heavenlies. It's against the, the warfare in the spiritual realm. That's where our battle lies. It's a struggle. We understand that not only is the place perhaps a physical location, a tough place, where it's testing our fortitude and our mental ability to actually make it, but it's a spiritual battle for your soul and for my soul. It is a struggle. Are you willing to struggle this out? Third and finally, and this is where I want you to draw some encouragement today, that the wilderness, write it down in all caps with exclamation points and emojis and all of it. Write it down. The wilderness is a place of victory. Come on, somebody. Place of victory. You say, what? Come on, you've been spending the whole time talking about the place. You've been spending the whole time talking about if Satan can just keep you there long enough, he can destroy you. If Satan can just get you on his, his dominion, his authority, his arena, he can destroy you. You say it's a place of victory. Come on, I've been in the place. I'm in the place. And you call it a place of victory? Yes, I am. And here's why. Because Jesus is saying this. Look. I've already been in the place. Not only did I come out victorious, I came onto Satan's arena. I came onto Satan's authority, his dominion, his arena. And I declared and I showed and I proved victory. I'm with you now in the midst today in 2018. I'm with you now fighting the battle because I've already been there. I've already claimed the victory. I've already won the war. And I'm here with you fighting the battle every step of the way. There's a place of Victory. When we see these two verses as a statement of authority and a statement of power and a statement of saying, 
you know, Satan, I've already got the victory. You can, you, can, you can attack me at every angle here in this place. But you know what? The reality is Jesus is here with me as well. He's already been here. He's already claimed the victory. He's already defeated you. And I'm going to stand here with confidence knowing that I'm going to defeat you as well. I'm going to conquer this. I'm going to come out victorious because God wants to do something in me and through me to use me for something else or for someone else. God wants to do something in the midst of this wilderness to claim victory to show that God has ultimately defeated Satan once and for all. Everybody say amen. Amen and amen. Would you bow your heads with me today? Perhaps you're here today and you're in the midst of the place. You're in the midst of the wilderness. You're in the midst of maybe a physical location. Maybe it's a, more of a mental, spiritual battle, whatever that may look like. But you're in the midst of the wilderness, the place. And you'd say, you know what, I, I'm losing hope. I've lost my, my drive to fight. I feel like Satan is gaining the advantage, and I'm willing to give in now. And, uh, and I need God to show up in a miraculous way and show me that he is with me. Show me that he is fighting. He's already claimed the victory. He's getting me through this, and he will. He will ultimately declare victory. I need God to show up in a, in a miraculous way. You're in the place, and you say, Pastor, pray for me today. All across this room, would you just ra raise your hand, wave it up, say, Pastor, pray for me today. Yeah, all across this room, people in the wilderness. Anybody else? Father, in the name of Jesus, I come before you and I pray that you would just claim victory over every wilderness situation in this room today, God. I pray that they would not grow, grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time they will reap a harvest if they do not give up. So, Father, I pray that you would help them to know you've already been there, you've already been, you're there now, you're claiming the victory, and you will ultimately defeat Satan in the midst of their wilderness. I pray you give them courage, I pray you give them strength, I pray that they would hold and look to you in the name of Jesus. At every angle, when they are beaten up, when they are attacked, at every single angle, I pray pray, God, that you would help them to know the victory is on the horizon. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Every head bowed, every eye still closed. I, I, I'd encourage anybody here in this room, you'd say, Pastor, pray for me today. Because you're talking about this Jesus. You're talking about all these different things in the spirit. And the reality is this. I, at one time, walked with Christ, and now I don't. Or for Perhaps for you, there's never been a moment where you invited Jesus Christ to be the personal Lord and Savior of your life. Today is an opportunity you have to come into a relationship with him. And ultimately, for, for you, your wilderness may be, I'm just not walking with Christ. And I feel this crazy, weird feeling in the pit of my stomach and it's nervous and I'm not really sure what's happening. And I would encourage you with this. This is the Spirit of God moving in your life. This is an opportunity for you to come back or to come into for the first time relationship with him. All across this room, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you're saying, Pastor, pray for me today. I want a personal relationship with Jesus Christ for the first time, for the thousandth time, whatever it may be. Would you raise your hand, wave it at me and say, that's me, pray for me. Yes, 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 yes. Anybody else? If your hand's raised, even if it's not, I'd encourage every person, if your hand's raised, even if it's not, place it on your heart and pray this prayer with me today. We're all going to pray together. Say, God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending your son to die for me. Jesus, I invite you into my heart now. I pray that you forgive me, free me, fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit. Change my life change my direction. God, I love you, and I commit my life to you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Everybody said amen and amen all across this room. Yeah, let's give God praise in this place today. Come on. The Bible says heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. Come on, let's lift our voice. 
Thank you, Jesus. Hey, look, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, for the thousandth time, there's a connection card. We want to invite you, draw your attention to it. Would you just fill it out? Draw, give it to a host. We're not going to embarrass anybody or do anything like that. We'll make you wave it in the air, nothing like that. Fill it out. Give it to a host. Give it to a leader here in this church. Drop it in an offering bucket. Find somebody. Just write on there, I made a decision. I have decided to follow Jesus. We don't want to bombard you with any kind of spam. We simply want to put tools and resources in your hand to help you on this journey of following Jesus. That's all we want to do. We want to come alongside that. Hey, thank you. It's been an honor, been a privilege being with you today. God bless you. God's got his hand on this house to make a difference in Bloomington and in Normal. And I can't wait to see how he continues to do it. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Joel. We hope that you got a lot out of today's message and that you'll share it with a friend. To stay connected with what's happening here at First Assembly, be sure to go to the App Store and type in 1AGBN to download the app. Remember... God's created you for a great purpose. Now go and live it out today.